Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 198th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that's not waiting in line for tickets to the arena. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host this week is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, everyone. Good evening, James. Glad to be here. Looking forward to sharing some valuable information with all of you. Our show is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering single sealed product and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Travis, what is on the agenda this week? This week, James, we have a show in four parts. Segment one is our top movers. We'll talk about the cards that have risen the most in price this week. Segment two, our cards to watch. Uh, We'll talk about the cards that, let's see, we think will go up in price. We'll talk about the card that our listener thinks will go up in price. And we'll talk about a Star Wars toy. So expanded segment two here. Uh, segment three, our metagame we can review. We had the Mythic Championship from this last weekend for our first real look at post-ban standard. And also, Wizards released the first post-Once Upon a Time Smuggler's Copter Pioneer list just a couple hours ago. So we can browse through those and see what the format looks like in that new universe. And finally, segment four, our topic of the week, uh, Paper Magic and Wizards Ultimate Goal with it. We know that they made some announcements today regarding worlds and arena, so we'll dig into that a little bit. So let's start at the top here, segment one or top movers. Uh, the secret layer bundle uh, looks like the bundle itself was MSRP at about two twenty, or at least that's what you're paying for it if you, shipping, for shipping, yeah. shipping and shipping and or taxes depending on where you were shipping. Yeah, to. so two twenty on the low end for you know an, an American buyer, uh, but it looks like the the bundles are what finishing on eBay for three hundred twenty five now. Is that is that what's going on here? I think when I checked the la- the lowest was something like 335, 345 or 350 on TCG. It's been shifting a little bit in the last 24 hours um, and a little bit cheaper on eBay. But once a few more bundles get picked off, um, it's, it's headed up. The thing is, a lot of the bundles haven't landed yet because Wizards is doing staggered delivery, probably because they printed, say, 10,000 of these that they had on hand ready to ship. And then they went back to a short-run print press for the rest, which will probably be you know, getting dropped into the mail system heading into the holidays. So I think that your safest bet is just to get out now. Um, take your plus $60, $80, depending on, or even more, depending on whether or not you manage to pull off the selling of the digital codes at the right moment. Um, still probably your best bet to just get out of the bundles now while the market is still relatively shallow and not bet on them hitting 400 plus which could happen but there's some risk in in trying to be last man standing here yeah i have to say if i had purchased any secret layer bundles and i didn't because i wanted to see how things went uh, had i purchased any i would absolutely be selling into this hype here because 
you know, obviously there's a chance that they could keep climbing from here um, and maybe they land at 450 in six months. But with how many we're going to see in such a short order here in the next couple of weeks, I'm not really eager to outlast all of that supply. You're, you know, time and time again, we've kind of seen with the sealed product and uh, various stripes that you're better off just taking the good boost right out of the gate, uh, claiming your funds and moving on to the next target rather than, you know, getting stuck for six or nine months after the hype cycle has moved on and you're trying to get rid of, of older product. Yeah, it's funny. Somebody that follows me on Twitter was trying to make the point this week that MTG Finance made a bunch of bad calls this year. And the um, examples they used was Mythic Edition, War of the Spark, and can't remember what the last one might have been uh, on that list. But basically they were saying that like most a lot of the cards or products that they had listed had retraced at some point. And my counterpoint was no not quite those were actually all really good picks that made us made those of us that were on the ball quite a lot of money and were some of our best investments of the year but it required that you not get greedy and that you not chase the dragon and get in really late like the time to be buying japanese war of the spark was week one when the wizards dropped that on everybody as kind of like a last minute bombshell and people that didn't have contacts in japan basically had no access distributors in the u.s barely had any inventory available to them Vendors hardly could get their hands on any. The uh, Japanese versions of the cards were selling way too cheaply in Tokyo for a couple of weeks. And by putting an effort in and working with contacts we had in Japan, we managed to make a lot of money for the pro traders by bringing stuff in and flipping it. So like I was, I sold something like seven or eight thousand dollars worth of Japanese War of the Spark at like two hundred dollars a box. You know, shipping full cases overseas. Um that you can now get in the like 120 to 140 range. So sure, those were bad if you were trying to hold for the for the midterm and thinking that it was going to go up more six months later. But if you understood that War of the Japanese War of the Spark was probably going to be in print for an entire year as a standard set, you know, it was really silly to not take the big money up front and, and run. And with Mythic Editions, one and three were excellent and made people plenty of money. Two just didn't have the chops in terms of the cards included. Um, and so, but people were still arguing with me on Twitter at the time when I kind of, I didn't get in on two in the spring, you know, Stu Summers was saying, oh, you know, like he had pre-sold a bunch of cards and made money like before he even took possession of the product. So how good or bad a spec turns out is really about how on the ball you are and how much hustle you have in most of these cases, as opposed to whether or not an opportunity presented itself. You know, conversely, I was holding foil smugglers copters heading into Pioneer like not with any like intelligence just because they were in the bad specs box from before um, from the last time it got banned. And as is like to happen when my schedule gets really busy, I didn't manage to get them posted for sale before it got banned. <laughs> so it's really just about how nimble you are. Yeah. And the when we talk about whether things were good specs or bad specs, the truth of that matter sometimes gets lost to the ages because you know and we can remember it in recent memory but you go go out a few years and it can be difficult to identify the timeline that everything happened in because you can take something that was you know was on sale you know you look at the secret layers and it was like they probably weren't a buy at 220 
Then the morning of, we found out about the Planeswalkers. Suddenly, they were probably a buy at 220. People bought them, immediately turned around and listed them on eBay and might have been able to sell them for like 350 380 uh, right after the, the bundles went down. And then those, and then two weeks later, those prices are going to crash as all of the copies actually flood the market. And looking back on that, it's going to feel like, oh, look, 220 was the price. And now they're on eBay for 260. So, you know, I'm sure there was a blip in of price in there somewhere, but, you know, in general, it was a bad spec. And it's like, no, this was, there was a very clearly a right time to buy and a right time to sell. It was just a matter of, you know, a week. Um, so you have really had to be plugged in to know that. Uh, and I feel, I feel like time yeah. kind of erases the very specific points at which action needs to be taken. This is one of the things that makes the Pro Trader Discord really worthwhile because you're going to really grind some EV by participating in the jostling of ideas that goes on as Pro Traders debate the finer points of should we sell now or later? Should we buy this or not bother? You know, I was pretty cold on Secret Layer heading into it. Then we heard it. Then I was educated as to the value of the digital codes um, up front as the bots were just getting in on the action, you know, getting out on on my bundle codes at 73 ticks a piece, like just basically made the whole thing work. Um, shipping in and out of Oregon. So like basically having my bundles shipped um, to Oregon and then sold from there back out to other people, um, you know, saves me another 20, 25 bucks from not having, uh, having free shipping on the bundles and not paying taxes in that state. And then um, the stained glass planeswalkers that were announced last second to try to incent everybody that were probably always planned, but they, you know, planned as a surprise and then later changed their mind when they probably saw sales weren't moving quite as quickly as they wanted to on bundle day. Um, you know, adds another five or ten dollars to every box. So, you know, adding minimum thirty-five dollars worth of value to a bundle, plus the seventy plus tickets you could have got basically makes the bundles a hundred bucks. And then if you can flip them out, I think I sold mine around two ninety-five, something like that on eBay, minus fifteen percent for you know, eBay fees plus PayPal, you're still looking at a very, very solid return um, for a very short period of time. Like the whole, I got in and out of secret layer bundles in a week and then reinvested the profits from that into buying, I think, six uh, boxes of the Kaleidoscope Killers because they're the most likely to have Teferi's and or Bolas in them. I guess that maybe like one out of every five or six of them has one of those, which adds another, you know, 75 to $100 in value for those, at least based on current market prices. So if you know what you're doing, these premium products, you know, as you've said before, have been consistent winners, like much more consistent than almost anything else you could be doing with your money. Yeah, it's funny I say that, having bought so few of them, but we really have been treated to a new version of this stuff like three times in the last six months. Like we had the Mythic Editions, you had the secret layer bundles, you had, and you had the collector's boosters. Yeah. Uh, and I guess, so Mythic Edition, the third Mythic Edition, which was the real big one. The Mythic Edition was kind of a roller coaster, though, because the first one was great, the second one was a dud, and then the third one was great. But the third one was great in the spring. So you had Mythic Edition 3 in the spring. Then you had Throne of the Drain collector's boosters in, like, September, October, and now secret layer in December. So, you know, I personally have been a little reluctant to jump feet first into each one of those. And I've said that a lot this year, but it's because we've gotten three new product lines all this year. But now we, I feel like we're better, I, at least I'm personally better equipped with knowledge 
for the next time all of this happens. So the throne of the, the Theros collector's boosters, I know what I want to do. Um, and I, you know, obviously there's no mythic editions anymore. The next time secret layer comes around, I have a better idea of how to handle this. So, uh, you know, you should, and, and I know I've said this before, but I feel like it bears repeating as you should never kick yourself about missing an opportunity or playing something a little conservative because yes, you might miss out on the profit, but you don't want to be the guy who spent $2,000 on mythic edition two and just got totally cold clocked. Uh, and there's, if there's anything you'd catch from this podcast is there's another opportunity around the corner every single week. And that's not even an exaggeration. That's like literal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the most common complaints from pro traders in our discord is that it's hard to keep up with everything. We have a lot of days where it's actions 24 seven because we have people you know, checking in from around the world and it's about four or five, 600 posts a day. But the thing is you don't have to keep up with all of that. Like you can mostly focus on pin posts from our mods or our staff um, and regardless of what community you're participating in, you've just got to filter through for the stuff that makes the most sense to you. We have a, you know, I was talking to a, a new pro trader the other day who was, you know, discussing with me strategies for how to, um, you know, what to invest in, what to put money into. And they were pretty new to the whole scene. And I said, to be honest, you should be spending 80% of your time not even worrying about buying anything. Just listening and researching and, you know, debunking other people's theories and paying attention, figuring out which pros seem to be on the button with their analysis of new cards and new decks and, you know, evolving meta formations and so forth. And at the same time, ignore 80, even when you get into starting to speculate or or purchase um, for yourself, ignore 80% of all opportunities. Like just because somebody's got a like medium good idea doesn't mean you got to jump on it. You can you can leave somebody you know proposes a pretty solid EDH card that's probably going to get there in three years, but doesn't have any particular impetus to take off anytime soon. Like something like a Mirror Maid from Throne of Eldraine was discussed a bit in the Pro Trader Discord this week, and my response on that one was like, you can leave that be. Like that that's a solid effect. It's a good card in EDH. It's got solid stats for EDH, but it's not likely to be a big deal pioneer or modern card. Um, and there's other stuff that will be, you know, try or quad format, you know, stuff like Once Upon a Time or Oko in the situations where those cards are ubiquitous, but not so broken, they get banned. Mm-hmm. Um, you're trying to figure out that tier right below that, that's not ban worthy, but is going to be everywhere. Um, so anyway, the, I, I think 2019 is actually probably the best year ever from GG Finance because beyond the three products you mentioned, if you go back to that spring period just after Mythic Edition 3, it was Mythic Edition 3, Japanese War of the Spark, and then like less than a month later, Modern Horizons, and then less than a month after that, Corset. And all of those products had had tremendous money-making potential. Tons of cards took off from Corset. Tons of cards took off from, from War of the Spark. Um, the Japanese boxes in particular did very well for two or three months before they, you know, uh, supply overtook demand. Uh, the stained glass planeswalkers now provide additional challenges to some of those cards, but not like all that much, um, given how many copies were likely printed. So I, I think it's been a fantastic year. Um, and in segment four, we'll talk a little bit more about, you know, some of the challenges that are coming that seem to be presenting themselves and what they might mean for the, the magic economy. But in terms of the road behind us, I've got nothing to complain about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, all signs point to to another year of uh, 
of wild profit opportunities, uh, especially given their comments regarding Sanders' set design a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but okay, that was the first card on our list. So let's keep moving. <laughs> not, not even a card, a product yeah. for sure. I guess you could count that as like the first 20 cards. Uh, second card of the week is Soulfire Grandmaster out of Fate Reforged. This is the one that Cliff actually picked on our cast last week when he was kind enough to hop in for us. Um, <clears throat> the foil 750 to 1150. So uh, not a huge jump, but definitely some price movement there, probably from people picking their copies up, honestly. Um, well, a I, combination of Cliff picking it and 5,000 people hearing that. Yes. And and then the echo out from the people that then echoed it to their friends and whoever. Um, plus the the market demand that led to him, uh, speculative market demand that led to him picking it in the first place. People have been fooling around with it a bit in Pioneer. It's not a uh, consistently top eight in card by any means. It's not showing up on any top cards in Pioneer lists. Uh, but it's got a single printing and it's a mythic. So... If it if and when it does get there, it will be well positioned so long as it doesn't show up anywhere else this year. Mm-hmm. Don't disagree. Um, Knight of the White Orchid out of sh- oh, you got that Shadowmoor. Uh, that should be Shards of Valar, right? Shards of Valar, right? yeah. Yeah. Uh, is Shards S H A? I thought it was. Well, it doesn't really matter. Uh, non foils three and change up to uh, five and change for not quite a double up. About 50-60%. Knights is doing pretty well in Pioneer lately, um, or at least people are hoping it's doing well in Pioneer. So we're seeing some movement on just the non-foil copies creeping back up. Uh, You'll also find this in Magic Origins as well. And there's a dual deck printing. So there's a couple different versions floating around. Uh, Looks like the lows on all of these are roughly in the same ballpark. More than Knights, it's actually White Weenie. White Weenie is the, according to Goldfish's latest stats compilation, the third most popular um, 5-0 deck on Magic Online, probably because of its price. Uh, Looks like it is a 69-ticket deck. So it's probably not the highest power level, but there's enough people that are interested in playing it at that price tag to generate some 5-0 lists. My guess is that this deck is not good enough if price is not a consideration. So it could be one of those things where Magic Online stats lead people a bit astray. But within this list, Knight of the White Ochre is always a four of. Um, and it's, you know, Boros Elite, Dauntless Bodyguard, Giant Killer, Kithian Hero of Akros, Mardu Woe Reaper, Thraben Inspector, Knight of the White Orchid, Thalia's Lieutenant, Benelish Marshal, and Venerated Loxodon. And then Spell Slot is just Brave the Elements and Declaration in Stone. Okay. I mean, I see it. I don't. I don't. I don't personally love the list, but people are clearly trying to play it. Its best result lately was in a Pioneer PTQ on November twenty eighth. It did seven and two, and it had a five zero list as recently as the fifth. Okay. So uh, I don't love it either in those circumstances, and I think these are the kind of decks that will tend to get wiped off the map um, at higher levels of competition. And as the format gets addition, like gains additional power and velocity and more and more pros are trying to break it. Um, we haven't had a bunch of big pioneer tournaments yet. It hasn't been a pioneer pro tour yet. Um, and there's been very, I don't know if, have we had a pioneer GP? No, no. Right. So that, that kicks off, I think in January and that's going to be, you know, the first big test of, you know, in 14 rounds of play or whatever, uh, what rises to the top, and something tells me it's not going to be White Weenie. 
No, uh, hard to imagine. This is a format uh, where both Anger of the Gods and Supreme Verdict are in the top 25 cards in the format. Yeah. yeah. Uh, next card following that is Ural the Miststalker. And uh, this gave me a double take because I'm like, wait a minute. I feel like I just talked about this card. Um, but it was uh, somebody bought out my non-foils recently. I had five listed. They bought all five. And that's why this looks familiar. Um, the Alara foils 40 to 60. Uh, so this is definitely somebody given that I sold five, uh, like a week ago with absolutely no, uh, they had been sitting on TCG player for a while and then suddenly they all just got bought by one guy. And now we're looking at the foils are going from 40 to 60. Um, someone's going after these. I don't know. Maybe this is on like command cast or something like that. So I can't speak to that for sure, but definitely some movements on girl here. For the sites that rely entirely on posted prices on TCG, they'd be seeing this as 300 because there's only a single copy listed and it's at 279.97 or something. Um, <laughs> I curated the number down to 60 on the basis of what I think you can actually get for it. Okay. Um, this isn't that big of a deal in Commander. Like there's pe- people that play this deck, but and in a in a market where they don't print this again in this very Commander heavy year, uh, this could escape easily. And you might get 60, 80, 100 for your foil because there's just none others around. There are still some sitting around in Europe around 30 to 35 euro. Um, and I'll probably might snap off one or two just to test the market. Um, but it's not the kind of thing I want to be deep on because I just don't think the demand is all that all that huge. No, no, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't think so. He's been a very cool. He was a very cool commander a long time ago, back when the format was a lot newer but a lot has been printed since then so he's lost some of his spark i have to assume people you know presumably since market price on tcg is showing us 42 dollars, i presume people picked off three or four or five copies at around at around that price thinking that because he interacts with auras that he might see a resurgence in demand based on theros coming back around the mm. cautionary tale i'm telling everybody about theros is it's not a block full of enchantments it's just a single set so, and they've got a lot of things they're trying to accomplish <laughs> at the same time with that set, and it's mostly focused on standard, right? So, will there be some commander goodies in there? For sure. Um, is this set necessarily going to make Dance of the Mance uh, a super red-hot card? I mean, maybe, but maybe not. I, there, there was a lot of chaff in the, the uh, spoiled cards for Theros, so... We'll see how it plays out and see if it's as pushes Eldraine. My current guess is that it's not quite. I, I would think that it's more top-heavy than Eldraine was with more like the traditional 5 to 10 good cards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think that Theros is going to deliver a tremendous bounty of resources to Ural. Um, every time we go into a set hoping to get a bunch of tools of a specific type for Commander, whether it's cats or equipment or auras or knights or what have you no we get we always get less than you think you're going to based on the plane or fairies well, I mean, with at, throwing of eldraine yep 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 the, the, the funny thing is though even though that's true you're absolutely right to say we hardly ever get as much as we expect um that was also true not just with fairies but with ninjas for modern horizons with slivers for modern horizons um all of those things made money but again, you got to be nimble because somebody was asking me today, like, why is Sliver Overlord down $60 or whatever from its peak this year? And I'm like, 
Well, because people got really excited about Slivers for Modern Horizons and dove in pretty deep, Sliver Queen got up to 200 or something, and I sold a, like a, a few copies in the 180 to 200 range, and now it's back down to like 100 or something. Um, and that's the kind of thing that's going to happen when Wizards is constantly bombarding people with fresh hype cycles. It's it's not that the cards aren't good anymore, um, necessarily. It's just that people's attention is being diverted to other places. So, mm-hmm. and, and one of the things we've talked about only briefly, I think a couple of times in, in the history of this cast is this concept of um, the attrition of volume, that as magic moves from 10,000 10, cards to 20,000 cards to 30,000 and 50 and 80 and whatever, there's just too much for anybody to remember. And there's only so many different formats and decks and opportunities for purchase that you can focus on at any one time, fit into the, you know, busyness of everybody's average day-to-day life. If they keep turning people's heads in new directions, then it becomes increasingly difficult to lean on, you know, mediocre single format specs to get there. Because there's, in a lot of cases, some of these older cards like Ural, that's an old enough card that anybody that started playing in the last five years that didn't catch a Command Zone episode where they mentioned it or something may not even know this card exists. Oh, I'm confident a huge percentage of Commander players and Magic players in general don't know what that card is. Hell, even if you were playing during Alara, if you're not tapped into the EDH scene, you might not remember that this card exists. The only thing that's going to keep the memory of these cards in place, essentially, at this point is newer players seeing the cards at their local store um you know you, you, it's funny because when all this started the internet was suddenly everyone had all this information but now there's so much information that you can't r- grasp it all which you know this has parallels in all aspects of our life but at least as far as magic goes it's like well edh rec is going to keep people remembering these cards right that will be the resource that that and if it's on EDA track, people will know it's there. But if it kind of like falls off the wayside and isn't showing up as much, you'll start to lose some of that institutional uh, memory of these cards until Wizards sees fit to re- bring back slivers. They announce a new, you know, slivers in the next secret layer or something like that. And everyone goes, oh, yeah, that was a thing. And all the new people are like, wait, what are slivers? What are these things? And they go and it pops up on EDA track again and they remember these exist once more. I mean, YouTube is probably the most important driver there. Like, EDHREC matters, articles matter, social media matters, but YouTube matters most. Like, the, the our constant frustration with how some of the worst MPG finance pr- content providers have the biggest audiences, <laughs> notwithstanding, the same is true of, you know, things like Command Zone. I mean, if Command Zone mentions, you know, somebody runs URL on a Command Zone episode, that's going to make a much bigger difference than, you know, whatever data EDHREC is posting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I don't doubt that. YouTube touches way more people probably on a daily basis than EDH Rec does. I guess I'm thinking for the for the enfranchised player who feels like they're in EDH, like they'll bump into like like the thing is, is EDH Rec stands as an existing repository of that information. But I don't know, like, for instance, how far like are a lot of people going back and watching all the command cast catalog? You know, are they going back to episodes from two years ago and watching those still where they this card got might have gotten played? I don't know. I'm sure some people do. But I guess EDH Rec feels a little bit more eternal and YouTube is a little more flavor of the monthy. 
But I mean, one of the things that's interesting is you have to compare the subscribers to something like Command Zone at 330,000. So those are the people that are having that push to their the front page of their YouTube every week and are presumably watching most of the time um, to say the t- the most reported card on EDH rec. Because if that most reported card of the month, say, got reported 2,500 times or something, but there are 330,000 subscribers to the command zone, which probably still doesn't approximate the total number of active EDH players, then you're talking about something like a multiplier of like 130, right? Like we we, we tend to talk about the number of decks reported on the EDH rack as, you know, it's our best available data a lot of the time. But it's one of the things that Jason Alt has made clear every time we've ever talked with him about it is that it's more valuable from a perspective of relativity. The relative popularity, if one card is reported in a month 2,500 times and another one's only 1,000, the multiplier between the two of them should guide your hand more than the absolute number. And the number of subscribers on some of these big YouTube channels underscores that by suggesting that it might only be 2% of Commander players that are reporting data on EDH rec at all. So, you know, a thousand decks reported there might mean a hundred thousand copies sold. Oh, yeah. 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 I, I mean, I don't think I feel like we've hit this <clears throat> this point before, but there's no way that, you know, if a card is in 30,000 EDA track list, that that means 30,000 people have in their deck. That's just used as a point of reference against the rest of the EDA track library. Uh, we know that it's a lot more than 30,000. We don't really know what that number is, but you know, it, 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 it is that data is only useful as a relevant point against itself and its companions on the same website, which, uh, which we've brought up, but it doesn't, it bears repeating. My best guess at active commander players is something like a million. Magic likes to talk about about once a month. Yeah. Like Magic likes to talk about having 20 million players that touch the game or whatever, but they, that's not, not even close to active. I would guess active Magic players is less than 3 million, maybe less than 2 million, and that maybe half of those are Commander players at this point. Mm, a million. So if we're talking about people who play once a month, I don't know. That's hard for me to... I mean, a million sounds like a fair place to start. But I would also believe it if you told me, I'd probably believe it less if you told, I'd be less inclined to agree with you if you told me it was 500,000. And I'd probably be equally as inclined to agree with you if you said it was 2 million. Yeah, I mean, if it was 500,000, that means 60% of all commander players are subscribed to the command zone. And as great as they are, I don't think the penetration is that high. Well, actually, that's a good point of reference then. Because if we're talking about what, 300,000 some odd command zone people, I would put, I don't think one third of all... EDH players are subscribed to the command zone. That would be an insane penetration, even at one third. Yep. So that that means two to four million sounds a little more reasonable to me. I, I could believe twenty percent of all command uh, all commander players are subscribed to the command zone, which would suggest that it was something in the like one to one point five range. Hmm, that still seems like a weird ratio to me i mean it maybe command zone is that popular but that would be surprising but in any case it it leads me to believe i I think the next survey i'm going to run on twitter is if you play commander are you also subscribed to the command zone on youtube (laughs) because i'm curious as to what that number looks like 
Uh, sure. Although I would argue that your results will be skewed heavily towards yes, because you're already speaking to a enfranchised popularity. True. I take that into consideration with pretty much any result I run on there. But we still yeah. get a still pretty solid sample size with 4,000 plus followers. And my results are usually in the hundreds. So it's pretty decent. It's like it gives, gives you some form of indication and tries to get you a little closer to the kind of data integrity that Wizards has access to. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, mm-hmm. moving right along here to finish up this relatively shallow list this week. Um, looks like we're heading into this uh, people spending more time and money uh, thinking about holidays and paying off their holiday debt than they are necessarily about magic. Ronus the Indomitable out of Amonkhet non-foils going from 750 to 13. That's about 73% gains. Pioneer mono green lists have been running Ronus, I think generally as a two of, but since it's a mythic from a few years back with no reprint, um, it's in a pretty decent spot if it uh, maintains that slot in the format. Yeah, uh, that's exactly what it is floating around in those Pioneer lists. I don't love Ronus. Um, and I'm happy to solve them if I have any because I think that that deck that deck is going to get new tools pretty much every set, like some sort of aggressive green card. Um, that doesn't mean that they're going to replace Ronus right away, and it doesn't mean they're going to necessarily be like you're going to see cards of that nature printed in virtually every set. I don't know, obviously, when they'll be good enough to start kicking cards out of the Pioneer list, but. Ronus was never really big in any green stompy builds aside from a couple standard lists, I think. Like maybe he shows up as like a one of occasionally in modern. He just isn't enough of a powerhouse and I can see him eventually losing those slots to something else that gets printed down the road or something that better responds to the metagame um, that could become a, like a metagame flex slot type of thing. Yeah, his, his other format at present if you get to ride the bubble for a few months, is EDH, where 3,000 decks reported on EDH rack in the last couple of years, 3% of total decks that could run him. Those are pretty reasonable stats uh, for a Mythic. And, uh, you know, I, I'm probably a seller of, of Ronus, but I'm not in a huge rush, because I don't think he's going to necessarily get disrupted out of Pioneer, you know, anytime right away. But I don't trust him to hold the meta as a broadly used card. Um, so... You know, somewhere in the next few months, I'd probably be looking to unload my copies. Yep. Um, After Ronus, we've got Hope of Giripper, $3 to six and change. This is, uh, these are the foils showing up in Pioneer again. Hope of Giripper allows people to set up soft locks in Pioneer with, uh, oh shoot, with Kethis. Kethis lets you set up the soft lock with that. It's also seen play in the Insole Artifact deck. Um that's one way to go with it. So it's, it's getting it, it's getting it from a couple different angles. So it's not a humongous jump here. Foils are still only are jumping the six six fifty. So it's not it's not really blowing anything out of the water. But now that Smuggler's Copter is gone, looking through this week's the the today's data dump from the leagues and the challenges, I would say Hope of Gearper is probably the second most played vehicle at this point. Um, although there might be enough Aether Sphere well, harvesters hanging it's, outside. It's, it's not actually a vehicle. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. It's not a vehicle. I keep thinking that's a vehicle. Okay, so disregard that comment entirely then. The um, This was my pick last week to go foils to go 4 to 10. So we got a bit of the way there. But this is the kind of thing where you're not going to get an exit on a 3 to 650. Like that's worst case scenario <laughs> at all times is trying to get out of a card that moves that specific amount in that specific range. Um, you know, the market needs to pick up the thread and drain 
another 10, 20, 30 copies out and maybe a month or two down the road, you'll get your exit via buy list. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what, probably what I'd be looking for here. Um, I mean, that's an option too. You could, you know, it says 650. I'm sure buy lists haven't caught up. But if, you know, if you bought in it, if you did buy in at three, if you managed to find them at three and you can get six credit, that's not the worst. Although I would still probably be happy to hold them because I don't think that's going down anytime in the near future. It's not a card I expect to see reprinted this year. That's for sure. Um, right. Foils are currently getting 390 from uh, Card Kingdom for regular foils, promo foils, 475. Those are good numbers. Um, I mean, if you can, if you can, if you picked up at three and you can flip out at 390 in a week, that's along with some larger buy list order. That's totally great. Like if you ratchet like that five, six times a year, you're going to be very happy with your results. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yep, for sure. Um, Silmgar Scorn out of Dragons of Tarkir foils three to eleven, so that's a big jump. Uh, this is someone <laughs> you've got. This is a pioneer play, which I don't disagree with, but that's <laughs> okay. Sure, this is a double blue as an additional cast. You can reveal a dragon card, so it's it's counter spell, literal counter spell. If you have a dragon in your hand that you can reveal. And if you yeah, don't so have a dragon, it's like monotype, basically, two mana monotype. Yeah, so the dragons in question that people have have tabled lists with are either Nicol Bolas the Ravager um, or Niv-Mizzet Reborn. Um, because the Niv-Mizzet lists often run one of like three or four other dragons. So they tend to have a dragon in their hand waiting for mana to, to show up. And so some of them have run Scorn wasn't hard to drain the Scorn Foils out because it's a single printing card, um, even though it wasn't uncommon. It's still, you know, several years back. But I, I don't know how deep the demand really is because I, I feel like those decks are squarely in Tier 2 to 2.5 for Pioneer and probably going to get worse over time. Um, if there's a time to play a Dragon deck in Pioneer, it's now, and it's unlikely to be later. <laughs> Um, however, keep in mind that Nimbus Reborn is a is a real modern deck. It's been showing up in five, making five O's like pretty much weekly in modern for months. So if Nimbus Reborn is good enough for modern, it's probably good enough for Pioneer. So mid rangey dragons, I don't have a lot of faith for the long term. If Nimbus Reborn actually wants Silmgar Scorn in the slot, then that could keep the spec alive. But this is the kind of thing where you're hanging your hopes on something so specific that if you've got an exit, take it. It is hard to see how dragons with the current card pool get better. There's always a possibility that they print some such like some three mana dragon or, you know, some ridiculous enabler that kind of changes the the landscape a little bit that suddenly makes this relevant. But uh, I don't you'd have to have like a a, some sort of real dragon focused card to make this worth it and i mean we don't really have much on the horizon that would make me think that's coming um i don't think that akoria for instance is going to really have a lot to do with dragons um nor do i even think that they would necessarily print the type of card you'd need to make this super relevant so i don't know if you can get 10 or 11 bucks nine bucks if you can get six bucks for these foil scorns i'm pretty sure i'm just shipping them hard and fast I mean, Dragonlord Oshitai is okay against Oko, I guess, if you're running uh, Blessed Alliance or whatever the card is that lets you untap the the Oshitai. <laughs> but 
yeah, I, I think you'd, you'd rather be presenting the Oko than presenting mm-hmm. the Ojitai. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, moving uh, right along, we got Helm of the Gods out of Origins, foils going from 3 to 12. Um, Discord uh, participants were reporting they actually sold some over 10. Um, this, To my mind, this was clearly pushed by speculators. Um, I don't think this is natural demand per se. Like, I think there's an undercurrent of natural demand building into Theros because this is another one of those enchantment-related cards um, that has only a, has a single printing, doesn't even have a promo from Origins. Like, it's literally there is only one kind of foil for this card. So wait. for these foils to drain is very easy. Hel- wait, no. Uh, Helm of the Gods. Oh, I'm thinking of Champion's Helm. Sorry. Yep, never mind. Yeah, so yeah. Helm of the Gods, single printing foil. Um, no promo foil, no anything extra, which seems very strange in this day and age. And it's also from the pre-Core uh, 2020 era when foils were more rare. So, again, this is the kind of thing I'm absolutely a seller. Like, if you got in under five or something and you're wondering about your exit, just, you know, post them at a dollar below everybody else and get out. <laughs> and hopefully you weren't too deep because this is the kind of thing I only want to have, like, a small handful of. If I'm trying to get out before it becomes apparent that it's not actually needed. Um, yes. You know, I'm sure people are probably re- relying on the um, concept that there will be some really cool enchantment uh, commander in Theros. That's pretty much a lock. It, standard sets yeah. don't really get printed without those things anymore. But you don't know that that's going to be the most popular commander from that set. And you don't know it's going to need these specific cards. So you're banking on it showing up in an adjacent alt article and him being right. And that's just like a lot of ducks that need to, you know, line up for you to get the exit you're looking for. So I don't want 50 copies of Helm of the Gods foils. I want two or three, which is exactly how many I bought when it was being discussed in Discord last week. Right, 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 right. Yeah, this is, I, I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I presume they'll give us a enchantment based commander in Theros. But at the same time, they've been kind of printing them all over the board, too. Um, you know, some of them have been on, you know, they've been printing more walkers at, like, on common. I don't remember. Are they are they specifically not printing more? Or legend, sorry, lock, uh, legendary creatures. They've been printing more legendary creatures at uncommon uh, with lower power levels. Uh, they kind of give you the option if you want it. So they could put the, like, enchantment commander in the uncommon slot, like the, the I'm thinking of Sir Conrad from Throne of Eldraine. Sure. It was a cool card, but like technically that checks the box, but it's not nearly interesting or potent enough to move a lot of people into that space. So if like the enchantment commander isn't intended to be a major commander for the set, you might, you might, you know, you might just not get the traction that you need on it. Uh, our list is full of cards that you should sell today. <laughs> yep. Um, because Pioneer is still sorting itself out, and a lot of this stuff is going to fall by the wayside. Yeah. All right, let's finish off here with Display of Dominance. Uh, foils from a dollar to $5. So you might be scratching your head, which is fair. This is a two-mounted green instant from Dragons of Tarkir. It's choose one, destroy target blue or black non-creature permanent, or permanents you control can't be the target of blue or black spells your opponents control. So to me, this is someone hoping to that display of dominance replaces Veil of Summer in Pioneer, <laughs> right? That's got to be what this play is. Which it is. Like it's clearly an inferior card, but 
the slot is necessary because you still need to instant speed kill Okos, and it also kills Teferi Time Reveler and Teferi Hero of Dominaria and Narset and Ashiok um, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So the the card's gonna see is seeing play and will continue to see play. Um, and again, because it's from that same three or four years ago era, even though it was an uncommon, wasn't that tough to clear with the foils. Market price in the foils is only showing at a dollar. Currently, the lowest posted price is $10 with two listings. So I think if you got in at a dollar, you're probably looking for a buy list exit, like somewhere around three or four. And that would be, you know, happy, happy, fun time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You'll take what you can get on this one. And I will grant you that while the card was essentially, well, was significantly less interesting in the past, the printing of Oko has made this a lot more interesting than it might have been otherwise. Uh, well, and it and also, I guess, it, like, mono black decks are still a thing in the format, and green black decks are a thing in the format, and there's plenty of black things to kill at instant speed. So, I actually got a, yeah. like, a fair amount of play. You know, Veil of Summer was more of a, like, ultra flexible, ultra busted <laughs> kind of card, where, like, the worst case scenario was a cantripped. This thing costs another an additional mana, so right away that's a, you know, a, a downside. But it's a very flexible kill spell in the format. It's probably like of the top 50 permanents in the format, it probably kills something like 55% of them. Yeah. Yeah. It's better than, better than it appears at first blush, I think is a fair way to describe it. Also kills Brazen Borrower, for instance. Uh, Murderous Rider. Kalidus. Yeah, Thing in the Ice. Fairy, Brazen Borrower, Narset. Liliana, the Last yeah. Hope, and Fae of Wishes. So, like, Ashiok, pretty pretty strong. Um, yeah. Can't can't quite run it main deck like some people were doing with Veil vale of Summer at one point, but um, yeah, it's a solid sideboard card, and there's just no supply. Also, not the kind of card I expect to see printed anywhere this year, because again, we this this is not the kind of thing you're going to see printed in the commander set. And even if it was, it wouldn't be a foil. They don't print no. sideboard cards in commander decks. No, no, no. I wouldn't expect to see that. It's um. I would say it is highly unlikely this ever ends up as a main deck card, and if it does, there's enough problems that you should be worried. Yeah. You should be about expecting what... Oka to be banned the week after. Yeah, something's going to happen. All right, let's move over to segment two, our cards to watch. We've got quite a bit to discuss this week, so why don't you get us uh, kick, kick us off here? Try to plow through it. Uh, Great Henge Extended Art. Um, apologies to the three or four different pro traders that tabled Great Henge as their pick. Um, that they were trying to get us to pick up this week. I had already uh, established that I was going after the Extended Arts. Sorry, guys. Um, I think your pick's solid, um, but I think the Extended Arts are even better. The ramp is setting up pretty cleanly on the Extended Arts. Uh, you can pick them up around $22. I'm targeting to get out on them in about a year at, say, 35 somewhere between 30 and 35 um, This card is showing signs of life for Pioneer and Standard, and is certainly a strong EDH card. It's got just under two years left in standard as a format. Um, it's a mythic. It's been, it was already flagged like right up front. We were talking about this card. It showed up in our set review. No, nobody, it was the, probably the easiest of the mythic um, artifacts to spot as a plant for EDH. But if it crosses over into strongly into either pioneer and or standard, it's going to move faster. And, uh, I'd expect the extended arts to do fairly well in those circumstances. Yes, I like the Great Henge. I 
when we did our initial discussion of this card um, back when we were breaking down the rarity of all the, the stuff I got, this was very much on my radar. I went looking for the foils at the time, um, trying to find any that were underpriced. Uh, and they've come down a little bit. But overall, I do like the Great Hunch specifically. And I went trying to buy. I also went, when I saw it on the list here, I was like, oh, okay, I guess it's that time. And went looking for them on the sites that I have, store credit as well. Uh, so I, I think that the payoff isn't going to be immediate, but I would be shocked if it isn't eventual. The, the thing about the normal Great Henges is that they can be replenished from Thornabell drain boxes relatively easily. The market will cough those up out of drafts and so forth. But the extended arts, as they start to drain, now that we're past peak supply, because we've got Theros Collector Booster Boxes coming up. Like, we're doing our pre-sale on Theros Collector Booster Boxes this week. So if you've been th- considering joining the ProTrader Discord, this is a good time to do so. Because you can easily cover your year just by buying your Collector Booster Boxes through us instead of somebody else. Um, but... With that already coming down the pipe, and who knows when they're going to announce another secret layer, like probably two months from now or something, um, all of that stuff is going to pull eyes totally away from Eldrain collector booster boxes, which will just slowly drain out of the market until there's just no point of replenishment. And if people buy 20 or 30 of these, it's going to be a $28 card, and then another 20 or 30, and it's going to be a $35 card. Mm-hmm. Yep, it is definitely looking to gain through 2020 um, with nothing really in place to stop it. And it is a it is a very popular EDH card, and I'm surprised at even how much play in Pioneer it's seen, and Standard for that matter. If you get an early... If you play a Mana Elf, and then your turn 2 drop has 5 power, then you get to cast the Great Henge for... With that rant green ramp, potentially the next turn or the turn after. And it does a lot of work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> People probably haven't fully memorized the text on this card yet, but it taps for two green mana and gives you two life. <laughs> so it's ramp in and of itself. And then whenever a non-token creature enters the battlefield under your control, you put a plus one plus one counter on it and draw another card. So it's a yeah. full-on like take control of the game and outpace your opponent engine once it hits the the table um and at eight mana if that two drop is a five drop then it costs three mana on turn three it it's uh it is a major engine no doubt no doubt also um, the extended arts look really nice yes they do it is a it is a good card for the extended art uh, all right so that's my first pick what's yours all right well i wanted to pick pioneer cards uh and try and focus on that but when i was doing my when i was doing my research for this the list hadn't come out yet i think they got posted like you know half an hour or something before we started recording so i'm on the edh train today um and i will return to you know scouring pioneer for more concrete picks next week um but i will get us started here with a laboratory maniac out of uh ultimate masters Foils are available at about five bucks right now. Uh, Laboratory Maniac is in 14,000 EDH rec decks. He is one of the most popular creatures and possibly the most popular blue creature in EDH for this month. Um, So we know that people are adding them to their decks recently. 
And the Innistrad foils are start at about $12 and go from there. So you look over at UMA, uh, you know, you can get a pair of them for like $4.50. Then immediately after there are $5.50, 6 bucks. And you only have to go about, I don't know, four play sets, maybe five play sets, like 20-ish copies, and then they're already, and then they're $10. Um, so you, you don't have very long to go before you're catching up to the current Innistrad foil prices. And those are in real short supply themselves. And total supply on these UMA copies, there's 24 TCG vendors for, you know, probably maybe double that in number of copies. Um, and we know Laboratory Maniac is, was used in modern, uh, not currently legal in Pioneer, but very popular in EDH and a couple other assorted places. So card that's got proven chops over and over and over again, supplies getting real low. Um, so I feel like this is destined to move towards Innistrad prices and beyond in the next, you know, six months or so. There's a few other things going on here. Because you're calling out the foils, even though it's a commander card, it's not going to show up in either of the deck series. Like, there's one coming out for Ikoria, there's another one for Zendikar in the fall. The commander product in the summer we know to be uh, green commander cards, so it's not there. So the only two risks that we know about would be the core set in the summer, which I suppose is a possibility, or the commander legends in the fall, but I question how many like awkward utility slots like for fringe strategies are going to be in that set given that there's 70 or 80 new commanders or whatever um so and the other thing that that really um puts a capper on its likelihood of reprint is that it's a mystery booster card which are all non-foil so which is the same feature that uh has me supporting my next pick anything that's in the mystery boosters is going to be significantly lower chance of showing up in another set in 2020 because it's basically already in print somewhere else mm-hmm mm-hmm yeah i i i caught that i forgot to mention it so yeah o- overall i mean it's it's not like it's going to explode or anything but i do like the overall trajectory on lab maniac here my next card's like as i said a very similar position i'm calling out tireless tracker one of the top uh, 15 cards in Pioneer uh, currently. Still sees play in Modern, still sees play in Legacy, sees some minor amount of play in EDH. Um, foils were a lot sexier before Pioneer was announced. I think they were as low as 8 to $10 or something. Um, now they're more like 16 to 18 depending on where you're buying them. And I think if, if I call it at a solid 18 and say you're going to get off the train at 30 that's probably your best bet at this point. Um, it as well shows up in the mystery boosters which to me signals you're definitely not getting any more of these this year in foil um and if that's true then these foils will have plenty of time to mature i i think this card is powerful enough that it's not going to get kicked out of pioneer in the next six months which should give you your exit this is way better in pioneer than some of the other cards we've talked about you know ronus or what have you um i do like his his position much more. I mean, let's see, non-foils are already about $13. So foils at 16, 16 to 20 here are a lot better looking. Um, let's see, in terms of what you're looking at for foils, yeah, there's there's the pre-releases. You know, those are $23, $24 as it is. So yeah, scoring these at 18 bucks, 
I think is great. I agree with you. I don't think he's going anywhere in Pioneer right now. I think he's going to be there for a little while. I think that, uh, yeah, he, by the way, Tireless Tracker is the eighth most played creature in the format. Eighth most played um, card in the format. Eighth most played, yeah, yeah, sorry. Eighth most played card. Yeah, that looks really good. 20% of, 20, 21% of all decks, 2.3 copies per deck. Yeah, that is, that is good stuff. That is good stuff. So I actually have some Channel Fireball credit and they have a couple copies. So I am going to go buy those, in fact. So there well, you go. I'm, 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 you know it's a decent pick for me if Travis pulls the trigger. Doesn't happen all that often. <laughs> well, you know, it's per, to our comment in section one, I do three cards on Monday, two cards here. So every week I'm picking five cards of my own. Then there's the three you pick every week. So every single week I'm looking at, I'm in either between you or I, close to 10 picks. That's every week. So when we talk about not taking every shot, yep. <laughs> like I don't, I, I'm not Fair. buying 40 different cards every week, right? Like it's just, it's too much, yep. but, exactly. but this looks good. All right. Your next pick. Uh, yeah. My second card this week is Vandal Blast. Um, fo- and again, foils here from Return to Ravnica. They are sitting around $12, maybe, maybe 13. You can get them, I think at 12, but there are eight vendors on TCG player right now. Uh, it is in, let's double check here, uh, 24,000 EDH rec lists. It is the third most played red card in EDH. And there are 10 foil copies on TCG player right now. And there are, there's only one foil printing. So this isn't, people aren't going to pay $40 for foil Vandal Blast, but they'll pay 20 to 25. Um, so there you go. Nothing. Not a, not a not a wild piece of information here, but uh, I, or I should say, it doesn't require a tremendous amount of explanation. It's just a really popular card uh, that's just about to disappear. This one is a pretty prime candidate for Commander Legends. That so, is yes. So, so hopefully you're out in the next six to nine months before we start getting spoilers for that. If it dodges that, awesome. But I wouldn't want to wait around. And in those situations where you want to get out of your stack, just make the stack a little smaller, which is not going to be hard here because you couldn't go deep on this if you wanted to. There just aren't that many copies lying around. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I probably wouldn't buy more than a playset, even if I had the opportunity, which I don't. And I'm assuming you won't either. But I completely agree with you. When I was writing it down, I was thinking like, well, this is a really good looking card right now that's probably got a pretty big target on its head for 2020 especially because it does have one other printing but it's commander 2015 so it's now like already what five years old right now um or well, it's like five a decade it's like a decade since it's foil yes exactly so the point being is it's not like there's one foil and six non-foil prints um, which does put it in position to show up again pretty soon i think you're in the clear until commander's masters at the end of next year yeah, Commander Legends or whatever. Legends, the, um, yeah, whatever. Yeah, I think that's a good one. Uh, another shallow pile, and you'll probably do just fine. Uh, yep. My last pick is Bone Crusher Giant. I'm talking about the uh, extended, not extended art, the showcase versions. So not exclusive to the collector boosters, just uh, relatively rare. Um, Bone Crusher Giant is in the top 20 Pioneer cards, which was a little surprising to me. 3.3 copies per average in the decks that use it. Also sees standard use and occasional modern use even. It showed up in some Jund lists. Um, hmm. It's uh, 
pretty steep ramp brewing for something that should be at peak supply just about now. I like buying these at $5. This is one of the showcase cards where it's clearly better art. Uh, so as with Fae of Wishes and Brazen Borrower, there's no contest. Like they deliberate, it's almost like they submarine themselves on the regular art. So you'd be pursuing the showcase versions. And so these at five to get to say somewhere between eight and 12 seems pretty likely in the next 12 months. Um, and it's good and it has enough versatility in Pioneer that I don't think it's going to get kicked to the curb for some other spell anytime soon. Yeah, this card has been surprisingly popular. Um, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not even like terribly surprised to hear that it's in Jund in modern, simply because it represents, you know, Jund is all about you know essentially two for ones, and this card is really good at being that because you get to kill something, you know, treat it as a bad shock up front, and then you get a creature out of it after the fact, which you know, there's your two for one but also if you can man you know it might take another card out with it on the way um or at least it makes it annoying for uh yeah so it makes it annoying to lightning bolt or abrupt decay after the fact like you might get two more damage out of it so uh clunky on the surface but just a lot of value packed into that body and i do agree that the promos are way cooler looking uh it's it's also showed up as it's also showed up as far back as legacy like there's yeah. like three or four different decks that have been running two or three copies of Bone Crusher Giant um, in Legacy decks. So if it's if it's strong enough to make both modern and Legacy decks, then it's going to have a home in Pioneer for the foreseeable future. Yes, yeah, and even you know it'll show up in Pioneer because it's a really good value engine, or I shouldn't say engine, but a really good value piece. And it'll also show up in Pioneer because it gets it gets played in the uh, uh, Possibility Storm builds. Because right, right, now right. you can run him and cast him as an instant speed removal spell for two mana. But when you cast it as an instant with Possibility Storm in play, it won't hit itself. And, you know, sure. think decks like Living End and Possibility Storm are always looking for cute corner cases like that. Here's a deck that in modern where it, it it made the cut as a four of that five owed last week. Four Eidoline of the Great Reveal, three five Rexian Revoker, four Bone Crusher Giant, four Goblin Rabble Master, four Magus of the Moon, four Season Pyromancer, four Simeon Spirit Guide, four Torbrand Thane of Red Fell, doubling up all the red damage, um, or I guess not doubling it, putting doing two more, uh, four Lightning Bolt and a Braid and two Seal of Fire. Um, so. <coughs> Four of us in modern uh, are probably looking pretty solid for Pioneer. So yeah, yeah. five bucks on those. Exit somewhere 10, 10 and beyond. Say you're going to expect to hold them for a year and get off earlier if you get the chance. Mm-hmm. I like it. Um, I like it. We've got a pick from a listener here, right? This is a Pro Trader Discord member by the name of Handle Ron Diggity. Um, we had eh, quite a few options from the Pro Traders this week. A lot of solid picks. Some of them were uh, a little more solid than others. This one stru- stood out to me as something that is um, just so, so likely to be true. Uh, he picked out Abrupt Decay Foils, flagging the Modern Masters 2017 version as the cheapest version thereof. Um, around 13 or 14 to get to, say, 25 for about 70% plus minus fees. Top 35 cards in Pioneer. 
extremely useful in a format that needs to kill things uh, early and often, uh, including Okos, and can't be countered. Don't think it's going to get replaced anytime soon. Don't see a place for them to reprint it anytime soon. We know that the sets that are currently in the hopper to be released to us were not designed with Pioneer in mind, so I wouldn't expect to start seeing Pioneer staples reprinted into the format um, until 2021. Uh, all of that suggests to me that given the product slate we have on hand, Abrupt Decay Foils are pretty safe this year. I would say that the most likely place for it to show up, uh, given what we know about the coming year, is in a secret layer bundle. Um, because that's going to be the earliest and best way for them to target Pioneer staples in in the coming year will be to dump a bunch of Pioneer cards into some secret layer bundles they haven't fully settled on yet. That, uh, yeah, that seems like a fine place to put Abrupt Decay. I you, They could theoretically print it into Standard. But that's a that's a very powerful card for standard. Yeah, and, then, um, and as a as a secret layer thing, it works so perfectly. They can do the serum visions thing, where instead of doing four different arts, they can do four different arts by the same artist that shows the thing decaying in stages. Mm-hmm. So, like from mm-hmm. the moment the spell is cast till the complete obliteration, and that'll just be perfect. And they can charge thirty nine ninety nine for that one, and slip in another stained glass planeswalker, and boo- booyah, that'll sell like crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't disagree. So I think the card itself is positioned well. You're you're dangerous secret layer, but there are so many ways they could go a secret layer that I don't even really think that you can. I don't think that you can avoid cards based on what you think might be in secret layer because yeah. we can take a guess that we'll see one in three months, but we really have no clue how often they're going to do them or what direction they're going to go. I, so I wouldn't put the chance of being printed there more than five percent. No, I and I really given how experimental they seem to want to make that product, this anything really like it's it's hard to say that nothing's appropriate. So and, and keep in mind that it's Assassin's Trophy is currently in standard. Yeah, there's yeah, a, yeah, yeah. There's that's no a, way they're adding abrupt decay on top. Of that. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So okay. I, I think that's a good pick from Ron Diggity. He gets the $25 gift certificate from Cool Stuff Inc. this week. Um, solid pick. It's going to make some people some money. Well done, sir. Cool. Good job, uh, Ron, and your name that makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> um, James, you've got uh, one last special one here for us. Yeah, we've been throwing in some wacky suggestions like cell calls and Magic Online stuff and picks from the... The Discord members and so forth lately, I thought I'd throw another one on the hopper that's something I picked up a few of today, um, just in case people are, are into The Mandalorian and the new Star Wars stuff that's been starting to get released for that. Um, if you're anybody who's paying attention to the Black Series 6-inch figures um, related to The Mandalorian would probably already know that both Cara Dune, who's the super butch, sexy, Xena warrior princess style uh, 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 warrior that uh, fought in the Seven Samurai ripoff in Mandalorian a couple episodes ago. Uh, her figure is pretty much sold out everywhere, so is the actual Mandalorian one in the his original armor. Um, there's a an exclusive of another cool character, um, the Heavy Infantry Mandalorian, which is the dude that um, pulled out the Gatling gun to back up the Mandalorian in episode two or three, I think it was. Um, that's a Best Buy exclusive that's out there this week. Um, 
I think they go for 30 bucks, so you can probably order it to your local store. I would imagine down the road these are going to go for like 50-ish overseas. They'll probably do even better because if they don't have Best Buys, then they don't have these. Um, Best Buy in Canada doesn't seem to be carrying it, so it might be a US-only exclusive, which makes it even better. Um, can't guarantee you you're going to get on on this stuff. Sometimes this stuff stalls on eBay around 35 or 40 and you're just not in position to make any money after shipping and so forth. But if you're looking for stuff for yourself or looking for gifts for Star Wars stuff for Christmas, it would be hard to go wrong because this is a very badass figure. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, I can't say I've watched the show, but uh, Are you I a Star will... Wars guy at all? Yeah, I do enjoy Star Wars. Uh, probably less than some of our listeners, but I am rating our listeners as very hot, big Star Wars fans. Because <laughs> <laughs> you think uh, we're all huge nerds. I get it. The, uh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I can recommend Mandalorian if you like the premise of like D&D in space, because that's basically what Mandalorian is. Like it's a mission per week. It's only a 22 minute episode, goes out, does a thing, fights a person, tons of little Easter eggs all over the place for people that are nerdy about that shit. And it's been tightly scripted. The action's good. The effects are solid. Um, It's better than I expected it to be. And uh, it's been entertaining. So I think my, it's gonna, my, I, I think it's going to go. It doesn't have any complicated politics associated with it in any sense. So it's very broadly popular. Yeah. Ah, now see, my friends who watch it like it. Uh, so I don't doubt that it's well done. I heard I saw someone say today that you have to, if you recognize it as a period piece and not a character development mm-hmm. show, it's even more enjoyable. Uh, it's funny you mentioned that because part of my reluctance to watch it is I have no interest in buying Disney plus uh, for, for reasons that I won't derail this podcast with, but uh, that is another, that just, just kind of leaves a bad taste in my mouth, but it's with Disney. If Disney didn't own star Wars, I would probably be a hundred percent more likely to watch this. <laughs> um, but okay, let's move on. Segment three, metagame we can review. We have uh, just released a couple an hour or two ago Pioneer List uh, post band. So this is after Once Upon a Time and Smuggler's Copter and the third card that I cannot remember at all that got banned. Um, but I will tell you the two things that jump out at me is well, uh, Mono Black is gone, like <laughs> gone. I think that you know there might be one or two floating around in here, but that took a huge hit. Um, and there's still green decks, but you're now seeing, I, I saw several blue-white control lists, which, you know, we were seeing before, but I feel like I saw more this time. And These ones feel uh, confident. Yeah, yep. And these green these green lists, you know, they pretty much all run Oko. Some of them run Nissa, some of them don't. Uh, they've got, you know, the six, one, the well, actually 10 one-drop dorks with the Gilded Gooses. They're playing Jade Light Rangers and Hydroid Krasis. Um, they're playing uh, the one we just talked about. Tireless Trackers in there, some Oozes, some Walking Ballistas, some Heart of Kirins. Um, Those are all over the place, too. So I don't, you know, these are the first lists coming out of the the ban announcement so it's no surprise that a deck that was very competent beforehand a green deck that was very competent beforehand with oko lost once upon a time but it didn't really matter that much because the deck was already pretty powerful and it just adds four more cards that are potent to the list so not surprised to see those whether they keep showing up in this in, at this um uh, 
amount next week and the week after is is the story to look out for here. Um, and I I I suspect they will. I, they'll probably change, but I don't see these going anywhere. Preparing for a tournament like a challenge or something even bigger, a PTQ or whatever, or a GP, et cetera, a pro tour, is so different when you have data than when you don't. So the first one is just what people wanted to play. Now they get to examine what did well and figure out how to adjust their list and whether their list is still relevant. So this week's list could easily look significantly different than next week's list and so forth. Um, in the first place, we did have a blue-white control deck in this challenge on December 8th. Uh, two Narset Parter Avails, three Teferi Hero of Dominaria, three Teferi Time Raveler, and then a bunch of blue-white spells. Um, pretty classic blue-white Planeswalker control. Um, four Ethergust in the board, dealing with the usual problems. Three Dovin's Veto also ha- has a lot of play in that regard. Two Mystical Dispute. So a lot of color-based sideboard action um, defining this format. Second place in that uh, challenge was a mono-red list that had a Bone Crusher Giant, four Bomat Courier, four Monastery Swift Spear, four Runaway Steamkin, four Soul Scar Mage, two Exquisite Firecraft, four Light Up the Stage, Lightning Strikes, Searing Blood, Shock, Wild Slash, and Experimental Frenzy. So this is a mono-red uh, aggro list that has a little bit of reach. Um, just to keep keep things, get the last few points in. Then in third place, we had uh, a blue-green Oko list with four Nissa who shakes the world, two of your Heart of Kirins, Jade Light Ranger in that three slot, uh, four Hydroid Crassus, a bunch of the usual suspects. Uh, Wicked Wolf is on my radar. We were talking about it in the discard this week, um, that the extended arts might be a pick because it's doing a lot more work in this format than I expected it to. Hmm. Um, Seems like as long as Oko and the green decks are a thing, Wicked Wolf is probably in the list. That wouldn't have been on my radar, but I can buy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, fourth place was another blue-white deck. This one was heavier on the Planeswalkers, 10 total. Two Jace Architect of Thought, two Narset Parter Avails, three Teferi Hero of Dominaria, and three Teferi Time Raveler. Um, it seems odd to me that these lists don't splash green to get in the Oko, but I guess maybe they just don't have the mana. It's hard to stretch the mana so far. Yeah, I do. You know, I do look at these and you, you wonder about that. And I kind of wonder if it's a question of the guy not wanting to shell out 200 <laughs> tickets <Sure>. for, <laughs> for a card that might get banned two weeks later. Yeah. And it's like, well, I have this pretty serviceable blue white control list and it might be better with Ogos, but I don't want to pay 200 tickets to try it and, and, and have it get banned while I'm holding. If, you know, maybe, you know, I can, it's moto, so I can buy it and try it. If it's bad, sell it back for a very tight margin. But what if it gets banned while I have it? I know we saw banned Planeswalker lists with Oko earlier in the format, so I will not be surprised to see them show up again. Yeah. And it also worth keeping in mind that it's possible they want to play Oko, but the mana is not quite good enough. Yep. But they'll come back to that if they, as the mana bases in Pioneer improve over time. If Oko's still around. Um, sure, well, sure, yeah, yeah, Fifth yeah. place is another green-blue Oko list, this time with the full complement of four Heart of Kirin and four Stubborn Denial. And it's notable here that there's only four Planeswalkers, the Okos, in the deck, but the Heart of Kirin's there because there's so many uh, high-power creatures. So you have Steel Leaf Champions, Wicked Wolf, Ronus the Indomitable, and Questing Beast, uh, and Lovestruck Beast. So between all of those, the Heart can get crewed up and fly over for damage that might get blocked on the ground. Um, mm-hmm. Sixth place list is another green-blue one, very similar to the one that was in second. Um, ditto the seventh place list, pretty much the same deck. And then eighth place is green-black elves, 
which I presume kills people with Shaman of the Pack. That's the uh, 3-2 creature that was reprinted most recently in Eternal Masters, that I think was from Origins originally. Um, one black and a green for a 3-2. When uh, it enters the battlefield, target opponent loses life equal to the number of elves you control. Um, only spells in the deck, 3 quarter Calling, and 4 Collected Company. That is That looks like a modern elves deck. It's in that vein, uh, for sure. I don't, you know, the one appearance is sort of like, eh, maybe. But, you know, it, I could see this gaining traction. Um, the Shaman of the Pack is pretty brutal. Um, they did get Steel Leaf Champion recently, which gives the deck some nice fat. You have a lot of creature reach with Court of Calling and Collected Company. Clan Caller is interesting in that it can really make use of a lot of mana to uh, to kind of ramp up. Um, you know, you trigger, you know, you get Nykthos going with like eight or ten pips in play. You can get a clan, you know, cast a clan caller from your hand and then use another one to search for it. So it can build up some power there. Uh, I, I would, maybe this will be what takes Mono Black's place. I kind of feel like it's probably a little too shallow to really put itself in position as like the, you know, the dominant aggressive deck. Uh, but yeah, it does stranger ha- things have happened. It does have, it's more like a creature combo thing, right? They, yeah, it doesn't really, it, it attacks only if it has to. The, um, it's got a Westvale Abbey. So it has that potential, uh, game plan. In the sideboard, they get because they're green black. They get to run the full four thoughtsies, which is certainly a boon as the, you know being able to run the number one card in the format. They have uh, a great henge in the sideboard. I guess if they want to, they think they got to grind it out. Um, and then ninth place was more of a green black rock style list. Um, this one had two tireless tracker and a whole bunch of stuff that would would be recognizable from green black lists in both modern and old standards. Liliana the Last Hope, Obnixilis Reignited, Vraska Golgari Queen, Three Corsair of Crufix, and Emrakul the Promised End, Four Grimflayer, Ishkana the Graf Widow, Murderous Rider, Seder Wayfinders, Siege Rhino, Tireless Tracker, Thoughtseize, Traverse the Ulvenwald, Abrupt Decay, Abzan Charm, Assassin's Trophy, and Fatal Push. That's just like a rock-solid, pun intended, mid-range list that in its skilled hands will do plenty of work. Yeah, I am. I'm excited about those Grim Flares. Yeah, uh, because for listeners who have been around for a long time, uh, we had talked about foil Grim Flares quite a while ago when Eldritch Moon was newish, and I picked up I don't know like 15 foils or something like that. And I don't remember what changed in the meta game, but they kind of lost traction. So I'm still sitting on those. So I would love to see those spike and pioneer. Uh, sure. Ditto for Ditto for uh, oh, what's his name? Tassiger, by the way. So if any of you are Pioneer Brewers, you should put foil Tassigers in your decks. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean it's it's only a matter of time before some flavor of Jund, you know, even if only in Jund and Spirit makes its way into Pioneer because a lot of the tools are there. The, next, the- just go through the, the list beyond that. Tenth uh, place was another blue-white Planeswalker list. Eleventh was another green-blue Oko list. Uh, then we had a green-red list that was running Chandra Torture Defiance and Kiora Behemoth Beckoner. 
this is the possibility storm build, which is, I think, important to know off the top to understand what you're looking at. Sure. And then all the creatures that the possibility storm can bypass and then later fool around with. It's also got a shared summons and an ember cleave. Those are (coughs) interesting pieces of the puzzle. Um, uh, And then 13th place deck, you know, mono black's not totally dead. Uh, The 13th place deck looks pretty, pretty familiar. Four Bloodsoak Champion, four Gutter Bones, four Knight of the Ebon Legion, four Murderous Rider, four Rankle, four Scrap Heap Scrounger, uh, four Thoughtseize, four Fatal Push, four Grasp of Darkness. So it looks like Grasp of Darkness took the slot that used to be occupied by um, Smuggler's Copter. And you still see the full four Castle Locked Rain, four Mutavolt, 15 Swamp, and an Urborg. So, no, they didn't top eight, but they were pretty close. And the question becomes... Will they top eight in the future, or as you suggested, are they going to slide out of tier one entirely and become more of a fringe deck? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, the 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 hot swap from Smuggler's Copter to Grasp of Darkness is pretty funny. Uh, Godspeed. Um, he probably just like, well, I want to play this challenge, and I have no idea what else to do with this list, so I'm just going to make this change and hope that it works good enough for now. Uh, yeah, I, I I imagine this is going to fall away, and in, 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 but maybe it'll some form of it will survive. But I don't know. Maybe we'll be wrong. We'll see. We'll see. Well, we know um, that the, the deck was needs the needs something to fit in that slot probably that does some of the same work, right? Because it's not like the meta has has kicked Mono Black to the curb. Mono Black with Copter would probably still be fine this week. So how much of a difference is Copter to Grasp of Darkness or whatever else you want to put in that slot? Unknown. Um, yeah. But they're, they're probably Co- working up uphill a little bit. Copter gave the deck reach, which was, you know, I'm sure appreciated, but not completely necessary. The deck does have some tools to try and, to, and reach past that uh, with stuff like um, Scrap Heap Scrounger and, and so forth. Uh, but I think the, you know, the card filtering that Smuggler's Copter gave it was very important and they need a tool that can give them more of that sort of repeated filtering, but also do something else. And that's going to be a tough slot to replace. Now they might get a really good, like three mana planeswalker in Theros, right? Like that's on the table as a possibility. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe Oko's black in Theros, you know, not Oko specifically, but like the card that fills Oko's general power level slot. So it's, it's out there. Um, I guess I'm just, you know, not holding my breath that that's going to keep that, that, that deck as it is built today is going to keep up with what the rest of the format's doing. There's some pretty interesting lists in the deck, the five O deck dump, obviously not as instructive as, you know, top eights from major events, um, but a couple things jumped out at me that we hadn't seen previously. One was a black-white Planeswalker list. Uh, it was basically 10 Gideons. Uh, two Gideon Blackblade, four Gideon of the Trials, four Gideon Ally of Zendikar, two Blood Baron of Viscopa, two Murderous Rider, four Kaya's Wrath, four Thoughtseize, two Anguish Unmaking, four Fatal Push, two Gideon's Triumph. That's real cute. Forces the opponent to sack two attacking or blocking creatures um, if you have a Gideon in play. <laughs> That's pretty brutal. Um, for two mana, and then four Heart of Kirin. Uh, that's fresh. Yeah, that that's one of those Gideon tribal decks. Mm-hmm. I know Saffron's talked about him a couple times because you ultimate you play Gideon of the Trials and then ultimate immediately, 
Whereas if you control Gideon Planeswalker, you can't lose a game, and then you've got 10 Gideons in your deck. So, like, good luck killing them, yep. killing them all. Um, it's a fun-looking list. I will tell you that my uh, those Heart of Kieran's I bought are looking better and better. And in fact, I think it was Card Kingdom that has them on the buy list for, like three dollars and change or something like that in store credit uh and i paid <laughs> uh 48 cents each maybe they're currently at a dollar 63 so okay don't think so, somebody somebody had um oh maybe no maybe that's what i was thinking of that they're a dollar 63 but it's still a triple up from yeah where I am. yeah there's nothing nothing wrong with that at all um and, and you've probably got room I, to go say again you've got room to go like there's no way this is you, getting reprinted this year no, I, I, I saw that and I'm like, you know, smart money would just send these in for the triple up and do a victory lap, but I'm going to wait. Like first week out, we're seeing a lot of hard of Kieran's. Oko's still really good. I kind of like where this card is right now and I'm not worried about a reprint. I'm worried about it falling out of favor in the meta. That would be what catches me, but I think I've got a little bit of time before that's too much of a problem. So here's another weird deck. This is Mono White, Nykthos Shrine to Nyx in Pioneer with a 5-0. And the card that catches my eye immediately, 4 Arcanus Owl. This is out of Throne of Eldraine. It's 4 White, 4 Blue Hybrid. It's a 3-3 Flyer. When it enters the battlefield, you look at the top 4 cards of your library. You can reveal an artifact or enchantment card from among them, put it into your hand, put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. Um, the rest of the creatures, four Knight of the White Orchid, aforementioned, four Thraven Inspector, and four Walking Ballista. So a solid pedigree on all those creatures other than the odd owl. Um, four Always Watching, which is an enchantment that gives your non-token creatures plus one, plus one in Vigilance. A Blind Obedience, a Dawn of Hope, which whenever you gain life, you may pay two if you do draw a card. And then for three and a white, you can create a Soldier token with Lifelink. Three Gideon's Intervention, which prevents uh, opponents from playing certain cards. It's basically like a meddling mage uh, in enchantment form. Two Legion's Landing, four Mastery of the Unseen. Uh, they used to do work and control builds back in the days of Jeskai Black. One Quarantine Field and four Stasis Snare. So this is like Enchantment Nykthos nonsense. Also runs three Castle Arden Veils. Hmm. Something tells me we're not going to see this showing up on a regular basis. Uh not until thrown not until Theros gets printed, anyways. <laughs> and gives them something even tastier to add to the list. Yeah. I mean that owl, I mean honestly, that owl is pretty legit for standard. Four mana, three three flyer that like impulses when you play it. Uh look at the top four, yeah. And it's four pips on two devotion. That is a that's a pretty legitimate card. Here's a another an alternate take on blue green Oko. It finds room for three Elder Deep Fiend, a Matter Reshaper, three Reality Smasher, three Rogue Refiner, and four Thought Not Seer. So blue green Oko Eldrazi. Hmm. Is that is that is, is that just Elder Deep Fiend that someone shoved Oko's into? It's a it's a little different than the other Elder Deep Fiend stuff we've seen. Um, okay. This is just like blue-green mid-range Oko that can go crazy if some of the synergies start to come together. Okay. Um, 
Also, some green-red lists that are mid-rangey that are running the full complement of Bone Crusher Giants, and then four Blossoming Defense and two Embercleave, uh, along with two Domri's Ambush, which is a green-red sorcery that says, put a plus one, plus one counter on target creature you control, then that creature deals damage equal to its power to target creature or planeswalker you don't control. So that's like an, their Oko killer, apparently. Okay. It's a weird one. There's a... There's a Zombies Rally the Ancestors list floating around towards the bottom. Yeah, we, we, we'd mentioned these briefly before, but it's got the Corpse Knight and uh, Wayward Servant play sets, which are like the two mana two twos that trigger life changes when zombies enter and leave the battlefield. And it's got some Stitcher Supplier and Antuka Husks. So it basically just wants to play a relatively fair zombie game at the start uh, until it moves a couple cards into the graveyard and then just cast rally at four mana mm. and dome them for ideally seven, eight, nine life. All right. My last flagged deck here. This is Kethis Super Friends. Nine Planeswalkers, Jace Wielder of Mysteries, two Oko Thief of Crowns, two Tamiyo Collector of Tales, and four Teferi Time Rattler. Four Mox Amber and a Wishclaw Talisman. Three Grizzly Salvage. Four Diligent Excavator, which is a 1-3, one, 1 and a blue human artificer that says whenever you cast a historic spell, which is artifacts, legendaries, and sagas, in case you've forgotten, target player puts the top card, two cards of their library into their graveyard. And then four Emery, Lurker of the Lock, four Fibblethip, the Lost, four Hope of Giripur, aforementioned, two Jace's Vrin's Prodigy, four Kethis, the Hidden Hand, and four Lazav, the Multifarious. <laughs> this is a work of art. A lot going on here. I can't disagree with that. <laughs> That's sometimes you see yeah. decks where you, you just know the person that put that list together is smarter than you are. They're something. <laughs> They're a laboratory maniac. Kethis is going to get there. Like, yeah, I have no doubt in my mind that Kethis gets there in Pioneer at some point. This this deck this list already looks nasty and has access to the only mocks in the format. And the best planeswalker in the format, which might be the best card in the format. But if it gets banned, this deck is still fine. <laughs> like those two slots can be two other nasty planeswalkers if they need them to. This is this is cute. There, okay. There's a fun one down here. It's a Lotus Field deck. So Lotus Field is the hexproof land that taps I, for three I, mana. I, I just bought two Russian foil promos for twenty-three apiece this afternoon. Yeah. This is, um, it's got the Vizier Tumbling Sands Hidden Strings package where like you just have 12 mana, but it doesn't have the finish. Like it doesn't have um, like the Omniscience package to try and win the game. They've got, they've got, well, they've got Fae of Wishes. They've got four Fae of Wishes. So clearly the plan is to Fae of Wishes for Omniscience and then cast Omniscience and then Fae of Wishes for Enter the Infinite. Draw your deck and do all this again. Um, but this is, you know, this takes the, those pieces and throws them into the sideboard and then builds a, a tighter main deck here. But he's got, you know, the four the four Arboreal Grazer, which is the one that dumps lands in the play, the Wishes of Zero Tumbling Sands, Dig Through Time, Grow Spiral, two Finale of Revelation, which is the one, of the, the, one of the, you know, it's in the Finale of Devastation cycle from more of the Spark. And I'll read this to you because I didn't remember either. It's X and two blue. Draw X cards. If X is 10 or more, 
Instead, shuffle your graveyard in your library, draw X cards, untap five lands, and you have no maximum hand size for the rest of the game. So at 12 mana, you draw 10 cards and have no max hand size and get all of your mana back, which is uh, when you've got Lotus Fields, isn't hard. And he's also got Thespian Stage to pair with the Lotus Fields. So you turn your Thespian Stage in the Lotus Fields. Um, <laughs> That's cute. And you, you can do some some pretty fun little combos here because like you can Sylvan Scrying on turn two, go get Lotus Field, which does not require that you sacrifice untapped lands, just two lands. So you Sylvan Scrying for Lotus Field on turn two. Then on turn three, you play another land, and now you have Lotus Field and, a, and another land in play for four mana total on turn three. But now you can play like hidden strings and like immediately jump up in mana production. Um, there's some there's some fun little movements in there. So I think Lotus Field's got a real future in Pioneer, and nobody knows what it is yet. But people are definitely trying some fun looking decks here, and I think this is the type of thing that's going to take months for Pioneer to find. Um, to really figure out what the best Lotus Field deck is, especially with how tumultuous the format is right now with these band changes so frequent. But uh, the, all these really cool decks are going to come. We're not there yet. The format's not steady enough for them yet, but they will come. Relevant to our earlier comments about Mono Black being challenged, there's actually six or seven lists in the deck dump that have come at Mono, mono Black from a bunch of different angles. The, the Vampire angle, the Zombie angle, um, both five owed multiple times there and then the various versions of just replacing copter and the old version so I, I need to see more data before i feel confident about whether or not they remain in the format I, but i'll say this the format looks vibrant there's tons of stuff going on here the the one pain point i see here is that i think oko is supposed to be banned um it's just all over the place yeah yeah i mean i agree with that i think that he's <clears throat> I I would be shocked if he made it to the end of 2020, still legal in Pioneer. I don't, I don't love telling people to hold Okos, let's put it that way. Oh, no. No, and I have those extended arts. Yep, so do I. Like, I, have, I have some very expensive Okos I haven't even laid hands on yet that are still being transported to me or that I haven't picked up from various locations. And I'm pretty confident I'll get burned on them. Once I get them, I'm going to trade them immediately. I mean, I have them in my possession it looks like the foils have rebounded a little bit. They were down to under 100 for the extended art foils. Now the TCG low is 123. And there's only one below 130. And it's actually, there's only, it's like one, two play sets to 140, basically. I don't know. This feels like playing chicken with a train. I might just ship these. You can get 85 in credit. From CK on the borderless foils, which would get me Ugh. out clean at about what I was in on. Ugh. That's, that's, yeah, I mean, I paid, I think the ones I picked up from Channel Fireball were like 110 or 120. Now I was buying with store credit that I got like a 30% trade-in bonus on. Sure. But it still feels bad. They, 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 they can easily make the choice here to leave it alone for a while, but it's just clearly the best thing going on in the format. So yeah. whether calling it a staple or moving a little further to the right and saying it needs to be banned is is a toss-up i don't like telling people to hold toss-ups one 
four, like four decks in the top eight had. Yeah, four. Okos. Then they were all play sets. Now, I mean, the thing is, is you, you'd be like, okay, these are the first decks out of the band change. My bigger concern is that it's, <laughs> it's not that it can put three, four, or five decks in the top eight, although that's <laughs> you could could be enough to get a band. Uh, it's more that so many different archetypes are running it and making room for it. It is yeah. really ubiquitous. There's at least 12 or 14 different types of lists that find room for Oko. Um, and that's probably too many. Yeah, I, like I said, I, I there's no way that it gets... It should not hit the end of this coming year on 2020 unbanned. I guess you can look at it like, well, how long will Wizards wait to pull the trigger? Wizards could pull, Wizards could reasonably push this decision back into January or February, maybe even, uh, deni- you know, with plausible deniability. But will they? Uh, I'm sure they're not eager to ban it in Pioneer. The, but the, the core impetus could end up being if they are leading into a if there's a pioneer pro tour and i want to say that there is uh magic fest what are they called it's not called a magic fest what's the pro tour called i now? have a mythic something Myth, or other mythic championship no players tours or players promotional tours no promotional mythic championship tour 2020 schedule no but the, aren't but aren't they turning in they're back to pts no i don't think so yeah, because we talked about it with Fournier. No, it's called the Players Tour, but that's not the Pro Tour. That's a different thing. Oh, well, I don't know. Wizards has done everything in their power to make sure nobody knows or cares. <laughs> so the first big Magic Fest, so the first big GP Pioneer pair triplet is January. The last weekend in January, both Brussels and Nagoya are Pioneer, and the weekend after Phoenix is Pioneer. So leading into that, if the the Magic Online data for the period, the interim period, shows ridiculous dominance from Oko, they could choose to ban it either directly thereafter or heading into it a little earlier. If they wait any longer, then they've got. If they do it last second, leading into those GPs, they're going to have problems because everybody's going to mm-hmm. be on Oko. So mm-hmm. it's got to either be early January to give people some time, or it's got to be directly after those gps the um the players tour schedule suggests that it's in brussels that same weekend but i'm not clear what format they're playing i don't even know if wizards knows uh yeah i like i can see them trying to push the decision until after the first of the year you know, holidays, you know, let people get through the holidays, see how things work out because they really want to keep it legal. They might be crossing their fingers, hoping that the format lets it work. But I agree that, you know, with two GPs, essentially three GPs in late January, all pioneer, they can't make that decision in the middle of the month. They would have to make it like, uh, I don't know, what's January 1st is a Wednesday. So they would make the call on January 6th. They might decide to go. I could see them doing it in two weeks on the 23rd, maybe. But this is getting to a level of trying to divine the tea leaves that I don't love to do with wizards. Um, so okay, Pioneer looks fun. Oko is going to get banned probably before the end of January. 
And if it, it's just uh, too risky, even if we're wrong, just understand that the risk you you are taking upon yourself to bet against that. Right. All right. Segment four, topic of the week. Uh, Wizards announced that they are worlds will only be played on arena. Now, this is for 2020 because they don't make any decisions further than six months out. But Worlds 2020 will only be played on Arena and will only be standard, right? Do I have that right? I think so. Um, so now, they didn't actually you know, announce you, that. People were referencing an article that they that led them to believe that that would be the case. So I don't know that we okay. have the official statement on this yet, but everybody is assuming that because they're playing on Arena and Arena doesn't have live eight-person drafts, that draft has been removed from Worlds because Arena isn't prepared to make that possible. Now, if they have somehow gotten ahead of schedule and that's the big reveal is that, look, we're doing draft at Worlds because we can actually do it, that's a different story. But we don't know Yeah, that's the case. And people are betting against it because of how long it takes Magic Digital to get anything done. Yeah. Now, you've got this positioned as a... Is Wizards looking to kill Paper Magic? <laughs> well... I don't. That's what people went off on this morning on social. That, that's um, what's written on my spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah. The, the Twitter community was going crazy this morning with all sorts of comments about how this is the latest harbinger of the doom of paper magic. And a couple of vendors that I trust chimed in with, well, not the death of paper magic, but potentially the, the death of LGS competitive play as we know it. And a lot of anecdotal evidence was thrown around about LGS's closing in certain towns, mostly I noticed in the Midwest, which is not surprising, um, because I think the richer coastal demographics will tend to support games of this nature in better. I mean, for instance, here in Toronto, a lot of that just seems crazy talk, because most of our major stores that were here when I was you know, 20 in university 20 years ago are still here. And if anything, we've added additional stores, not lost many. Um, you know, 401 Games has been the main store downtown since I was 17 and still there. Um, and face-to-face games out on the Danforth is doing extremely well. Um, and, and it has an expanded tour, like an SCG style tour across Canada this year. So, um, I believe that LGSs are more challenged. I believe that we could be heading into a general recession next year or the year after. Uh, I believe that Wizards has made clear that they are they are going to eat as much of the profit pie from the secondary market as they can. I mean, that's what things like Mythic Edition and Collector Boosters and um, Secret Layer is all about. That skip the distributor, skip the retailer, get all the profits for ourselves is a strong signal that they are sending. Them distributing booster boxes via Amazon was also bad for LGSs. Um, You know, not cracking down on distributors that probably sell directly on eBay is not great for LGSs. And so it's entirely possible. Like I could I could buy into some percentage of LGSs being in real trouble in the next couple of years, like 5, 10, 15, maybe 20 percent. But I'm not, there's a couple points beyond that. I'm not, A, I'm not convinced that, let's say you have a 
city that ca- that has five stores and two of them are going to close in the next couple of years the the next question is does that mean that 40% of players stop playing or does it mean that those players are playing at the remaining three stores that run their stores better because those are very different things right losing people out of the hobby is a much bigger deal than if we're talking about survival of the fittest and the best run operations that have a coffee shop and a sandwich bar and aren't entirely reliant on magic and you know keep up with the latest trends and collectibles and always have the hottest new D&D and and X-wing and whatever in stock and you know run good marketing programs and manage their overhead well et cetera et cetera you know, I, I, here in buffalo we've had quite a few stores open and close at one point we had something like seven concurrent magic stores which for the population overall population and the population density is just completely unsustainable Sounds high, yeah. In, yeah in fact one of the guys was going to open a store and came to me for ideas this was a couple years ago and i was like uh i wish you the best you damn should not open this store in this city if you really want to open a guard store move and he politely declined and i wished him the best of luck and i think he was open for three weeks um yeah because i mean toronto's 10 times bigger than buffalo and we i think we probably only support seven strong stores so right so and i you know the rise of Magic has been getting consistently more popular for quite a while now. And there's, I think, been a real boom um, in stores that sell Magic and try and run Magic as a major component of their business that's kind of gone, it kind of kept pace with the explosion in Magic. And Wizards has obviously been tinkering with their programs in such a way that isn't necessarily hampering the magic player growth, but is definitely making it more difficult for stores to, uh, you know, stay in business essentially. But I, I think the overall takeaway here is not that all of these people are going to quit magic. It's just that you can't have essentially probably most cities likely have too many stores for their magic playing population, at least currently. And as, and as someone who has watched like three stores in Buffalo close, those players don't disappear into the Aether. They move to the other stores. Now, yes, you will lose some players every time you close a store because maybe it was like down the block from their house and now they don't want, you know, before they would just walk to the store and now they don't want to have to drive across, you know, 20 minutes or 15 minutes, so they might stop. Um, But for the most part, you know, the people who are playing at store A and we're driving 10 minutes to get there will drive 17 minutes in the other direction to go play F and M, um, so you're not losing players as much as you're just losing uh, essentially shaky venues. Here's the cl- the cold clinical perspective: as someone who doesn't have a vested interest in whether stores survive or not, but does have a vested interest in whether or not Magic product overall sells more or less. There's zero evidence that Wizards wants to kill paper. Firstly, because it's more than half their revenue. And Hasbro currently sees Magic as a darling brand, uh, a one of their flagship brands, because, as we've talked about in the past, it was not as heavily affected by the Toys R Us bankruptcy, which shut down Avenue's distribution points for things like Star Wars toys and Transformers and what have you. The big benefit that allowed that to happen was the network of independent gaming stores. 
that weren't Toys R Us's that made sure Magic product kept selling through that period. When you combine strong online programs, things like allowing people to sell, distributors to sell via eBay, um, selling directly their own product to capture a greater percentage of profit, um, and increasing the total number of products per year, increasing the average price per product, all of these things are good for Magic as a whole. But they, they must know that they need to have local play centers of some kind in sufficient density to give people a first place to play. Because some people were arguing with me on Twitter that they're just going to shift to, um, that Commander is all that matters, and they're going to shift away from Standard and into Commander and rely on people to play Commander at home. That just doesn't ring true to me. I don't think that you can, that Commander will be able to generate the on-ramps into the hobby from that angle. You need to have, even though I almost never go to my LGS to play anymore because I'm just too busy, knowing that it's there, functioning, and that people are going there to play gives me confidence in the hobby. If you told me that all the stores were closed in town, I would seriously reconsider how much of this product I was willing to purchase <laughs> and, and hold because I wouldn't be able to see where people, new bought, new fresh blood is being brought in. Oh, if they said that all the stores were closing, I would immediately liquidate everything other than my personal EDH binder. And I would probably downgrade that from foils to non-foils. Like that would just be like, okay, uh, this is, I don't know where the ship is going, but I don't love the direction. So I, I agree with you that like a lot of people on the ancillary need to feel, it's important that they feel like the game is supported, even if they're not directly involved on a daily basis or a weekly basis. And especially in a hobby that has a probably higher percentage average of socially awkward people than say tennis does. The, you need spots where you can just sit Bob and Doug down at a table and tell them to play as opposed to relying on them to reach out through social media and find each other, which is just a much less efficient process. Oh yeah. And, and you need a place where cards are on display. That's what the, the benefit of having showcases is, is a big reason why the secondary market is so strong to be able to walk into a store and God, I wish I was still in this position where you barely know the game and you're just like, wow, look at all these options. And you just spend half an hour going through the case and picking out a bunch of bad cards because you're you're a noob who doesn't know how to play the game. And you go through a bunch of binders and you just pull out a bunch of stuff that looks interesting to you and you try to make a deck out of it. If you don't have those places to do those things, the game will sell worse. They must know that. And I think what my interpretation, therefore, of what they're doing is I don't think Arena is doing that well financially. Like people might be under the impression that it is. But the fact that they've had to fake so much of the marketing around that and some of the information I've been getting from sources I've been talking to suggests to me that Arena is not where it needs to be. And that things like making the World Championship about Arena are not so much that Arena makes them so much more money as that they are worried that that opportunity is slipping away from them. And they're trying to put it in front of people as often as they can to boost the numbers. They need to get further down that road before it is fully self-sufficient. One of the things that people forget is that the average revenue per user in the model that is present on Arena is significantly less than on Magic Online. Because you can play the game for free. You can grind every day and earn your way into cards. It takes a long time and it's pretty slow. But some people will just choose to do that if they can't afford anything else. 
Whereas on Magic Online, you have to buy tickets to get anything done. Like there's no there's no easy free to play mode on on MTGO. So the model is inherently more expensive for them to run per user because they get less revenue per user. So that means you need a much larger user base. And Arena is designed to try to attract that base, but it's not clear that they are pulling it together fast enough to justify it. And keep in mind, they've got a, they're currently running two products when they should be running one. So their primary objective has to be to complete the Arena product so that they can move at least Pioneer, if not Modern, but certainly Pioneer, and get proper drafts running on Arena within the next couple of years so that they can consolidate most of the digital activity under one roof and you know streamline their revenues. So I don't take the world's switching to Arena as a signal about being against paper. They desperately need paper to keep making them five, six, seven hundred million dollars a year or whatever it's at right now. Um, one of the things to watch out for will be the Q4 report for this year that will come out end of January or maybe it's mid-February that should, for the first time, be Wizards being forced or Hasbro being forced to admit the revenue numbers for Arena because they promised it during the last investor call. That will tell us a lot about what we need to know about what's going on on the digital side. In the interim, my take on what's going on with paper is that they're just trying to squeeze the LGSs. Maybe they believe that 20% of them could close survival of the fittest and the other 80% would just sell more product. Like me, they, they have the full map, right? They've got a map of where every WPN location is in the U S they could easily be looking at, at that and going, Hmm, Cincinnati currently has 12 stores. We're pretty sure that if, if we do things that kill off four stores, in combination with market dynamics, we don't have to worry about that because people will just play at the other eight. And it, and if that's the case, you and I don't have much to worry about. Like consolidation to lesser stores that that have healthier businesses is probably good for everybody. But if forty percent of players stop playing through the closure of forty percent of stores, that's tremendously different. I just can't see them allowing that to happen because Hasbro's made such a big deal out of claiming that Magic is a massive priority, that they want to double the staff of Magic, that they want to make X amount percentage more on Magic. And I think that they there's no game plan that where that happens strictly through digital. Yeah, I imagine that Wizards is looking at whatever data it is they have and... You know, we, we've we've gotten down, uh, by the way, a specific aspect of this discussion, but I can imagine they're looking at the data in front of them and saying, you know, we believe that X percentage of stores can close. The existing stores will become stronger. And this game definitely does well with like a critical mass of players in a room. Um, a draft can't fire with five players, but it will fire with eight. So getting five players in the door on Friday night means nothing ever happens and people stop coming. Getting eight people every time means it keeps firing and you and it and it builds. Uh, you know, I believe that they could be looking at that and seeing that they think there's room for that market to be trimmed a little bit and for the existing stores to get healthier. Um, on a broader note, I thought um, Chez Andres had a good little thread about this earlier today, uh, and he, you know, he was on the perspective of you know this is. I don't know, the 13th or 14th time magic is dying since in what, the last three years or something like that. Sure. It's like every few every few months the sky is falling and wizards is killing magic and blah, blah, blah. But like 
we know that just within the last couple of weeks, Hasbro announced they are doubling the size of the Magic team. Like, that is, I would consider the most... It's hard to imagine what else they, what announcement they could make that would show anything, would show more of a commitment to the game. Well, I mean, in fairness, you could interpret that to mean that's mostly digital side. Oh yeah, yeah. I assume it is, but that still means they are pushing Arena really hard and they're dumping the resources into it to try and really make it a big deal. So I don't, I don't think that means they're doubling the size of R and D, but like they're investing money into it. Well, I mean, an effort. More to the point, they can't give up the hundreds of millions of dollars that comes from paper, and I don't think that they can get those same that same level of sales without the LGS network. You have to have it's a physical product with global distribution. They're not going to turn that off. Like no one ever gives up on that kind of thing. Think about something like Transformers, also a Hasbro product. They have let they let that die in the late in the early nineties. And then resurrected it into Beast Wars successfully, and then let it die, and then resurrected it again, and then let it die, and then went through the Michael Bay period and resurrected it again. Magic's never really had an extinction period like that. It's a very strong brand. There's no way they are going to walk themselves right into one of those extinctions. <laughs> There's no on no planet are is their spreadsheets saying, okay, so next year we're going to 20 times our digital and shut down 90% of LGSs. Like that's just not even remotely in the game plan. They, they want to keep selling even more paper product and they can't just sell it directly to us as collectors because the, the utility of magic cards to play with your friends in a local setting and GPs and locally with your EDH group, all of it has to tie together to keep you committed to the hobby. Ultimately, they want they they cannot rely on us just playing Commander at home with our friends. The, the hobby would not be nearly as vibrant if that was how they decided to proceed. And it doesn't. The thing is that it doesn't cost them much to support the competitive side of Magic because most of those costs are absorbed by the store owners. So it's not like they have some huge overhead line that they need to get rid of. So I, I just don't buy it. I, I think what they're trying to do is squeeze more money out of the stores. They capture more profit. The stores run on more of a, a razor's edge margin. And if that turned into lower sales or lower um, participation rates on their books, and they felt like the combination of the two was was heading for a dip, they would reverse course in a heartbeat. They would come come back at us with a reinvigorated WPN program with all sorts of like promo support and stuff. There's no way they want stores to just be the place that you walk in, pick up your commander cards, and walk out. No, no, I, I can't imagine. I and I wonder how much of it is it not like how much of it is cost savings for them if they only have to support three stores in a geographic region rather than five. Like, like they have to send less promos, they have to spend less on shipping, all that type of thing. I don't really have a sense of how much that would impact their decision, but I do wonder if that's relevant at all. Um, the, the other thing that's interesting is that, like in Europe. Commander does worse. One of the reasons is that uh, space is at a premium. It's not as easy to run a 60-seat LGS in Europe as it is in you know, central Ohio. That's a big advantage in the Midwest where, yes, the demographics are worse and the average household income might be worse in a lot of those zones, but real estate's a lot cheaper. So 
you can run a, a well-run store that has a solid marketing um, uh, mix and that is run in an area with sufficient population to support things of this nature, it should be able to do well. I mean, like my dad lives in Ashtabula, Ohio, in the northeast corner of the state, in a tiny little town that used to be where they dropped off coal to ship it to the power plants that don't exist in Canada anymore. And that that place should not be able to support a magic store. But they've got an awesome program running since, you know, this dude Chris took over for his mom. And they're in an old blockbuster out on the, like, local highway. And they get 50, 60 people out for their events all weekend long. People come from three states over for their Pokemon tournaments. Like, you can run a successful LGS in a small town, even if the demographics are bad. You just got to know what you're doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And overall here, there's they could print Mythic Edition, make... What did we say? We figured it was something like two or three million dollars sure. in twenty-five minutes of online sales. Yep. Like <laughs> they're not—they're not cutting out their nose to spite their face here. They're—they're they're aware of all of this, and I—I I guess I just don't see this as being a threat to magic at all. Really, it, magic is going to look a little like it's just another tweak of another dial, and magic might look a little bit different in two months than it does today. But uh, I still think the brand is hugely successful they're making money hand over fist with it and you know they're not trying to kill the golden goose here it's worth certainly keeping on top of it's worth it's worth paying attention to what vendors are saying on social but understand that the guy who's telling you that the store is closed in his town is putting up his hand because that happened the guy whose Mm -hmm. town is totally fine isn't even talking about it the Mm -hmm. the the bottom line is that if they want you to buy Jace the Mind Sculptor Mythic Edition for $300, you have to have a format to play that card in. The, co- the collectors like my dad are not enough. Like, they are, they are super whales, but they, even my father, a lot of what he owns is because he <laughs> thinks that someday, maybe when he retires and if he's still alive and hasn't worked himself to death, he'll have time to go play whatever format he wants. So won't it be nice to have these cards on hand? <laughs> is that that can't that's not like actually what he thinks, is oh, it? Yeah, he talks nonsense like that. Okay. And I think I think a lot of people Maybe. that collect cards do it because they think they, they know there's some place to go play them. If if you if the utility was absent in magic, and it and the only thing two things you could do with a magic card was Buy it and sell it. <laughs> well, no, like were collect it for the sake of collecting it or play it in ADH. First of all, that's a much narrower band of cards to own. And secondly, like, if the idea is that those are the only two things you do day to day, but month to month, like, once a year you get a GP, that's not enough. Like, the LGS F&M system is very important. And I would be very surprised if Wizards executed a series of moves that were clearly aimed at shutting that down. Like, if if you heard them canceling the MPN network or, like, shutting down F&M officially, that... We would have some. Now we have something to talk about. As as so long as those are official programs that they're supporting, I'm unconcerned. I, right. I, I, to me, F and M would is the, I guess, the canary in the coal mine. Although it's a much bigger signifier than that. Even F and M was my on ramp. I think it's the on ramp. Like you know, I learned how to play when I was like you know in fourth grade. I wasn't going to F and M. The kids at the in the cafeteria had the cards, but like. The point at which you transition from like my friend showed me these cards to like 
learning more about the game and kind of on-ramping to somebody who actually buys anything is through FNM. Your friend says he wants to go. He drags you. You start going. Maybe he bows out, but you keep going because you want to play. You meet your friend group there. I'm not kidding when I say that every person I speak to in my life, like every social connection I have right now, I met through Magic. Um, even though none of us really play much anymore, like that, you know, we all built those networks there. And if I were to move and I needed to build a new social network, like I would probably go back to a card store and start playing FNMs because like hoping to kind of figure out who is around. Um, I, those FNM is like the major, major, like this is how you draw people in and expose them to the breadth of formats and, and what the game has to offer. So I agree that like if that ever changed for the worse that would be concerning but and uh, and, he- and heaven forbid if wizards has convinced themselves like th- they drank the the digital kool-aid and convinced themselves that arena f- will fulfill the same function mm. they're deluding themselves digital always leads back to physical video gamers you go to something like a fan expo or san diego comic-con video gamers are tripping over themselves to pick up physical collectibles that are related to the games they play. Because you, even in this age, until we all end up in the Matrix, you want to hold something in your hands or put it on the shelf and look at it and remind yourself that that's part of how you define yourself. So the idea that Arena would somehow lead to physical card sales if there was no place to go look at those and fondle them and pick them up buy some sleeves, buy a binder, buy a deck box, buy all these accessories that you will never need for digital, makes no sense to me. The the economy is so much richer physically than it is digitally, there's no way they can give it up. Adding digital as a layer makes perfect sense because the IP gets leveraged twice. We've talked about that many times. In the case of the era where you have paper plus MTGO plus Arena, sometimes it gets leveraged three times. That's awesome for a business. Like, you get to go back to the well. But you can't kill the original. Like, is it too much Too much of the magic economy, especially not just the revenue, but the profitability, is coming from the paper side. The margins are much higher in paper right now than they are on Arena. And anybody who thinks otherwise is just wrong. The, mm-hmm. It costs a tremendous amount of money to run a large-scale video game and develop it and code a game as complex as magic in digital form. And that's why it takes so long for them to add sets. That's why they're not going to go back and add 25 years to Arena because they can't afford to. Yep. I uh, I think that Magic's a legacy brand. It's been around for going on 30 years. They haven't ruined it yet. They're not going to ruin it this month. Yep. So I wouldn't get too worried, worked up about it. Yeah, I'd be thinking more about what your strategy is for the next secret layer release. Yeah, right. All right. Where can our listeners find you, James? You guys can find me online uh, via Twitter at MTG Critic, and as well as my occasional articles on MTGPrice.com, including a couple I've got coming up for the end of the year. Um, you can also find me haunting the uh, MTG Price Pro Trader Discord, where I'm usually hanging out, helping our members get the best value for their buck. Okay. And I am Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter at Wizard Bumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. Uh, and I write every Monday doing the Watchtower series for MTG Price. I'd like to remind our listeners to check out the MTGPrice.com Pro Trader service for just $7.99 a month or $79.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money. 
playing Magic the Gathering. Once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. That brings us to the end of episode 198. A good time as always, and I will see you next week, James. Thank you, Travis. We'll see you all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm-hmm.